are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. Each week, a writer in the Joseph Campbell Foundation community contributes an essay interpreting a mythic theme in a featured work from Joseph Campbell. This little blast of mythology that we call a myth blast forms the centerpiece of our weekly newsletter, which also contains curated selections from our archives. Go to jcf.org slash subscribe to receive this weekly email from us that will help you explore myth, storytelling, and the work of Joseph Campbell. Welcome to the podcast with a thousand faces. I'm Tyler Lapkin, podcast producer for the Joseph Campbell Foundation. What does it mean to bring soul to our lives and relationships? And what does it mean to care for the soul? Our guest today, Dr. Thomas Moore, has spent his life addressing these questions, and in doing so, has inspired millions around the world to deepen their understanding of what soul is and how to cultivate a more meaningful and authentic relationship to it. Thomas is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Care of the Soul. And since writing that book, he's written 30 books on soul, spirituality, and depth psychology, and has traveled the world teaching and speaking. In those years, he has also been a psychotherapist, influenced mainly by C.G. Young and James Hillman, who was his close friend for four decades. Thomas's most recent book is The Eloquence of Silence. In it, he shows that a daily awareness and appreciation of the quiet spaciousness in our world and in our lives is not a retreat from reality, but a rich and full welcome to all that is meaningful and real. In this conversation, Thomas is joined by Dr. Bradley Olson of the Joseph Campbell Foundation, And in it, they discuss soul, psychology, mythology, Thomas's new book, and of course, Joseph Campbell. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation between Bradley Olson and Thomas Moore. Well, first of all, Dr. Moore, let me again say how excited and and grateful I am to have you here. And, and, uh, uh, I'm so pleased that we can get uh, this time to talk a little bit about Campbell and his work and his work's influence in your work, which I think is is uh, in some ways profound. Definitely. There's no question. I've been uh, reading his work for a long, long time and uh, definitely heavily influenced by it. By the way, some... please call me Thomas. Oh, thank you. Dr. Thank Moore you. doesn't work too well. <laughs> well, Thomas, tell me about um, when you first became aware of Campbell and and uh, what was that experience? Was it through uh, a, a book or a, a lecture? Or I'm trying to remember. You know, I don't know the first time. I don't remember. But I do recall that... W- uh, when I was doing my doctoral studies at Syracuse University, that was in the 1970s, um, I uh, I remember I had a pretty heavy load. I was taking a seminar on Jung where I was required to read the collective works of Jung in that semester. And that's quite a bit, 20 volumes. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot to get through in a semester. It's a lot to get through. It's not the easiest thing either. Uh, but I enjoyed that. And I remember, I don't know what the occasion was. I have a hunch it was another seminar, probably, uh, where um, I gave myself a task that I was not able to complete, similar to the young one, where I wanted to read uh, uh, Campbell's uh, uh, Here with a Thousand Faces and the uh, the Masks of God, all uh-huh. these you know, these uh, one of the, volumes. And, but I wanted to also, when I read them, to study the, the original stories that he referred to. That's a lot, too. That's a lot. Yeah. There's so much world literature. So I was inspired by him, and I was reading Jung at the same time, which is uh, 
uh, an advantage, I think, because he did rely on Jung to some extent. And uh, so that's that was the context in which I, I read him, and I was very excited to do it and appreciated it very much. Yes, um, I think that your the way that you work with myth and the way that you fold them in in your own storytelling, I think, is is similar in that way. I think it is. Uh, what I really appreciated about uh, Campbell's writing is that is that he didn't he wasn't just trying to uh, retell and explain the myths or give their background or anything like that. He was trying to to explore the questions that were raised by them, the human questions, the existential questions that came up. So I appreciated that very much. And uh, and so as I read him, yes, I, I think he did help me uh, use myth in a way that it would be interwoven with human experience. And one more thing about that is that uh, uh, he, well, I want to give an example. Can I give you an example? Of what oh, I'm... please do. Yes. I selected for our conversation one passage that was very important to me. And this is from his Mass of God, Creative Mythology. So he has four volumes, mm -hmm. uh, Eastern, Western, Primitive, and Creative Mythology. It's wonderful. Here he's really making the connections to literature, to contemporary literature or recent literature. So he's writing about the the uh, <clears throat> the myth of uh, Tristan and Isolde, which is a beautiful story. And um, I never forget, never, never forget the image of Tristan in this little boat crossing the Irish Sea. Ireland is very important in my life. I spend a lot of time there and I have all my life. So uh, I was particularly interested in it. But can I read to you the line that he writes about it? He says, Tristan, resting trustfully on the bosom of those cosmic powers by which the movements of the heavens and all things on earth are controlled, has been carried on the concord of his Orphic Irish harp, resounding to the music of the sea and spheres, to that very Dublin Bay where Joyce's hero Daedalus was to go walking centuries later questioning his heart as to whether he would ever have the courage to entrust himself to life. Mm. Me, that sentence is worth, you know, the several <laughs> volumes. Um, I, I agree. He not agree. only he not only connects this ancient story of Tristan and Isolde, he, he not, not only describes that and makes a beautiful comment about Tristan crossing the water without an oar and without rudder, but then he connects it to James Joyce's uh, story of Stephen Dedalus, who is kind of a, a, a modern Tristan, and he makes that connection. And he says it so beautifully that we're trying to find, and we, when we are Tristan, are trying to find out whether we can entrust ourselves to life without oars and without a rudder. I mean, it's that's the that's like the gist of everything. That's the gist of it all. <laughs> it is, and it's so beautiful. And <laughs> and I think you're right to point to that deeply literary influence and sensibility that Campbell yes. brought to this work. Um, you know, I, I've often wondered he he was at Columbia contemporaneously with Lionel Trilling, who's the great yeah. literary critic. And and I've often wondered if they ever crossed paths. I can't <laughs> I haven't been able to find any evidence of that, but it's a it's an intriguing possibility to me. It's a real possibility because he, he had a broad approach to these things. He wasn't just he wasn't the anthropologist stuck in the trying to explain what a myth is all the time. He was exploring deeper questions constantly and making the connections, as you say, to literature. Yes, and I think that that he discovered, in fact, that the myths are good psychology. And I think he's, just as you have, and, and have made that connection as well, I think, with, with myth and psychology. Um, 
I think that was uh, one of his big discoveries, actually. I think so. I, I listened to the tapes of those wonderful conversations with Bill Moyers. Mm. And, and uh, those, in those especially, I feel that he is combining depth psychology and the spiritual traditions. Uh, and the, the common denom denominator there is mythology. Yes, so, I, you know, that's very... Yeah, I, I agree uh, entirely. I think that, I think myth was the vehicle for Campbell with which he explored the the limits of human consciousness. Yes, uh, his his idea of transcendence, I think, was always running in the background of his of his thought and work. Yes, yes, I think so. <clears throat> yes, and he he was comfortable. It seemed, let's say, talking about the Upanishads, mm -hmm. as he was in uh, exploring. Uh, well, you know, a novel or uh, one of the one of the great myths. For myself, I must say, and this maybe this is a point to mention that I have focused on Greek mythology, and not because I don't think the other mythologies are not equally valuable. It's just that it's all I could handle, and I, <laughs> and I think of Campbell going around the world and investigating all these mythologies on the planet. So many. Uh, that's a huge thing, and you have to commit your life to it. And I couldn't do that. I had to commit myself to. Uh, I wanted to commit myself to to the uh, many of the religious traditions, and uh, also, uh, and so I, I consider myself a theologian to some extent. And and I was a monk when I was a young man, so that's a factor. And and uh, and then. Um, what I try to do then is uh, is to following both Jung and James Hillman, who was a very close friend of mine and someone who influenced me a lot. Uh, the use of myth, as you say, to uh, to explore the especially the non-human factors in our experience uh, that can be best be that can best be uh, presented in mythology. Yeah, I think that ability that myth has to talk about the the unspeakable, the ineffable, the yeah. the uh, 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 the beyond names, forms, apparitions, aspects of of yeah. our of our thought is uh, is incredibly valuable, uh, and unfortunately, I think all too easy to literalize. And I know that's one of the things yeah. that you will often return to is the metaphorical nature of this, not not to be literal oh, with this. I bang away at that, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I seem to remember some rational materialist kinds of reviews of Care of the Soul way back yeah. in the day that oh. were unhappy with that uh, oh. uh, metaphorical approach. But I got a lot of negative reviews when I started with that, but then things tamed down a bit. Uh, yes, I had a I had a review of Care of the Soul that was ninety pages long, you know, in a major magazine. Oh my goodness! And all of it negative. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do, how does one deal with something like that? I mean, that's a that's kind oh, of a body I blow, isn't it? Attention. I really did love the attention okay. um, because I thought I would just disappear. You know, I thought I'd write this book and it would just as usual sort of slip away into the mud somewhere. But uh, uh, they had they put that attention to it. And I thought, wow, this is good, you know, because if they're going to do that, there are probably other people on the other side of the fence. Oh, that's a <laughs> I'm not sure I could have thought about it that way. But uh, I guess just it's the old story about spell my name right. <laughs> That's right. Something like that. Yeah, it's a version of that. Yeah. As long as we're talking about care of the soul, that that I would imagine was a turning point in your life. Oh my gosh, that was a. I mean, the big, biggest turning point I could, I, I never could have imagined, really. So I was going along. Uh, I had been teaching at a university. Uh, I taught mythology, among other things, at at a university. And um, 
then I was fired, you know, from the university. Hillman predicted it as soon as I got the job there. He said, you're not going to last long. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yes, I was uh, denied tenure. And that allowed me to write Care of the Soul. And that's what I did. As soon as I was denied tenure, I, see. I got to do something, you know. I was That was such an important, valuable thing for me to, to be let go of the university because I really wanted to spend my my life doing teaching. I love to teach. Mm -hmm. but it's, it was a very uh, limited and somewhat narrow uh, environment and very critical. So um, I was freed and I wrote Care of the Soul. And as I thought that would too be one of these little books nobody would read. But to my great, great surprise, uh, millions of people have read it. And I thought, wow, this is you know, I've, I've just invited, it was the key to, to open doors all over the world. You know, pe people invited me for all kinds of things to yeah. do. And I love that, to apply my my my, my work to uh, medicine, and to uh, arts, the arts. And I mean, just a great number of different kinds of groups that were asking me to come and be with them for a while. It was just wonderful. Yeah, and I think uh, it, it sounds to me as if it was an act of caring for your own soul after you were denied tenure. And, and uh... Oh, yes, you're right. That's right. And you know what happened? I shouldn't even mention this, but um, <laughs> just between us. Okay, uh, yes, we'll, we'll keep it confidential. <laughs> uh, I was, uh, I think about a year after I was denied tenure, the same university invited me to give their big commencement talk. I think that the people invited me didn't realize I had taught there before. <laughs> and so I, I thought, well, I'm going to go back there. And there were these, was a big event with trumpets and red carpet and all that kind of thing. And, and I promised myself I wouldn't say anything, but I couldn't help it. I had to say something about having been let go there and coming back with uh, this great triumphal thing. It meant a lot to me. Uh, but anyway, it was uh, it was important for me to do all of that, to go back and have a little healing with the university and also to uh, to go on with a much bigger life, reaching many more people and and being able to write so much. I couldn't have written so much if I were at a university. I was able to just to become a writer. That's what I wanted. Yes, I think I think it's so often the case that success really is nothing more than, than a kind of apotheosis of our failures in, in some way. You know, our failures move us into these other situations. And then sure. uh, we find, I, I think of Jimmy Carter reading that he just entered into hospice the other day. And, mm -hmm. and uh, the, 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 the blow that it clearly was to him when he wasn't reelected. And, and, but I think, if he'd been reelected, we wouldn't have had all of this lovely work in the world that he's responsible for. Yes. He's the best post president. You can yeah. yeah. That's great. And so uh, I'm a post university kind of guy. <laughs> well, talk a little bit about you'd mentioned bringing the idea of soul into. Um, uh, professions like medicine, for instance, and mm -hmm. what has that been like for you? What, how, how have you been received in the, in that world? Well, it's, it's so interesting that I'd be invited anyway. I was invited. I've been invited just everywhere you can think of in the medical world, at all different kinds of events. I'm usually the last one on the on the roster to speak. Because, you know, they're all doing these technical presentations and I come in with the soft stuff about the soul. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm happy with that position. Believe me, I like that very much. And generally, I get a very nice reception. However, most medical places that I go to dismiss me. They, they do. I once gave a talk at a rather large medical center. I won't mention it, but it was quite, quite large and well known. And they asked me to come and speak to the psychiatric residents. So these are students who have gone through, got their degree, and are doing their residence before they go out to work. And uh, they seemed to be right with me. I was talking about, you know, care of the soul and psychiatry and that kind of thing. And 
At the end of it, the professor of their course stood up and said, well, we're very happy that Dr. Moore came to talk to us today. I want to ask you to please disregard everything he said. <laughs> that was kind of that was kind of my role in medicine was to say my thing. And uh, I would have a few people, doctors here and there who got it, got what I was doing, understood. Yeah. And um but generally speaking most of them dismissed it because they are so dedicated in a religious way to the scientific method and to uh and to the limitations and to the moralism that goes along with that that hard science and it's very hard to shake it's very it's hard very, it's very hard yeah um i think even even in our own profession of of psychotherapy we run into that and oh yes especially in the days of managed care and and uh ideas about best practice and what constitutes that and um yes. It's it's uh, it's disheartening, and it's not not really a surprise to me that there haven't been any particularly innovative therapies that have evolved over the last twenty yeah. or thirty years. We used to have a lot of good ones that came through. Yeah, a lot of interesting. Some were some didn't last, but some were really. Very good. Now we don't see much of that. I think part of it, too, is to add to your list, evidence-based, which seems to me like if you're in a cocktail party, that would be a joke, you know, that <laughs> going to do what everyone else has done and nothing else. That, right. Right? Right. And and especially when we're, we're talking about the realm of experience and consciousness where there are vestigial remnants that we're aware of, but no evidence at all that one can point no, to for no, no evidence at all. other than my uh, <laughs> awareness of having had the dream or, you know, whatnot. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a, I think, you know, the, I, I, I don't want to go too far afield, but but for me, it's it's it can be frustrating at times because we want to talk about diagnoses as though we understand. Then, if we can attach this label, then we can understand and manage yes. what this phenomenon is. Yes, it's for the comfort of the practitioner. Yeah, it's a little bit like the Rumpelstiltskin story. You know, you discover his name and then he has to leave you alone. And... Yeah, right, exactly. That's right. Yeah, uh, yeah, I I, I, uh, I, think that there is there is a real problem there, for, especially for therapists, psychotherapists. Um, I'm, I just, before talking now, I, I spoke just, I spent... And two two hours this morning speaking to therapists, oh. and uh, and one of my one of the things I talked about for a while with them was the importance of uh, cultivating yourself as the instrument of your work. Like even outside your time, outside of your education, you can't get it from a book, you can't get it from conferences. You have to live your life in such a way that you are a therapist. Not that you practice therapy, but that you are a therapist, and uh, and that requires twenty four seven. You know, all the your whole time is preparation for your work. Well, that's entirely different from evidence based, where you just right. do what other techniques other people have developed and look like they're successful. Right. Uh, this is about trusting yourself and and becoming a person worthy of the, your client to be with and spend some time with and get something from you from who you are yeah i i was taken with um what you described as the the platonic understanding of the word therapeia yes uh, which is a kind of attention that's paid a sort of a that's right presence and awareness rather than actually right. being a technician or something like that the two words that I have discovered in my researches and then to Plato is that that word means therapy. Therapia means either service or care. Service or care or attention, attention, I think, is a very good form of care. So it's a good word for it. But it does not 
not saving, improving, exactly. none of that. Exactly. So, so it's, it can't really be put in that realm where you have this, uh, uh, you have your tools and you, uh, you, you have just this, your victim or your patient who comes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the, every patient is, is Dr. Frankenstein's monster that we will put together in the way that therapy <laughs> likes, even if they have stitches all over them at the, at the end of it. Well, th <laughs> thankfully, the soul seems to have its own uh, path because uh, yeah. I, I would create something monstrous, I'm afraid, if I had that kind of power. <laughs> no, would I think. We create monsters of our own ideas. That would be terrible. So to be able to be somebody that's comfortable with yourself and you have you have lived, so therefore you've gone through a lot of things that your clients have. Not that you have to do that, but not all of them, but that you have at least lived life. Yeah. So they can trust you. You're not above them. You know, you're not better than your client at all. You're just, you've, you've lived it and you have something worthwhile spending time with. I think that's very true. And, and uh, some of these experiences when I was younger, I used to wonder you know, what was the point of that or the use of that? For instance, I, uh, my first job as an adult was as a police officer. Oh. And I did that for five or six years. But, but that has also uh, created a, a foundation for, I think, um, having a unique perspective in the consulting room as a therapist. I think it's great preparation. Maybe we should all become policemen before we... <laughs> I don't know that I'd recommend that today. It was a very different world, I think, when yeah, I was doing true. that. That's true. But I mean, at least the service and uh, and in the in the, the fray, you know, in, right yeah. in on the streets with people, that's, that's where we need to be. We shouldn't be in some ivory tower... Uh, figuring out how people should live and trying to get them to live according to our plan. Yeah. Let me ask you this question. Um, we, we see today all the, all the uh, uh, conflict and the kind of the, the, the imbalance in, in our culture, in our society, this one-sidedness. Um, how do you see soul operating in this particular historic moment? It's pretty much on the edge. It's not It's not there. That's the whole point. We don't have a soulful culture, and we think we can survive with it. We can't. The soul is the breath, first of all, the breath of life and the breath of a society. It's the breathing. It's being alive. And uh, without the soul, you can't be alive. And so what you do is going to be always ineffective. You're, you're just, a, we're, we're all a bunch of cadavers going around trying to to create a world, we can't do it if we don't have a soul. What does that mean? It's soul, soul is not a sentimental, soft issue, really. Right. It's, it takes a lot of strength and courage to uh, to live from a soul point of view because um, it means you really enter into things and you see the mysteries and you remain with the problems. You don't quickly solve them. Um, you keep your humanity. Your, your, the soul gives you your humanity. And so that's the essential thing. It's not really having a smooth running society. It's having a society that that really lives, you know, that eats well, not just healthily, but eats with pleasure and enjoyment and in the right settings that bring people together. Food is really more about bringing souls together than it is about keeping the body going. I know a lot of people would wonder why I would say that, but I think it's true. That's the primary purpose of food, the primary purpose of food, not the only one, but the primary purpose to uh, keep society nourished. Yeah. And yeah. your family nourished and your marriage nourished. So there are all kinds of things we could do to, but you see the solution to this division in society, the polarization seems to me is not, it's not about managing a society. It's not about trying to figure out what we can do to make people talk to each other. It's more about creating the conditions where we restore our humanity. And that means, as I said, about food, about uh, uh, how our buildings look, our cities look. Uh, the building, all these tall buildings everywhere 
is 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 reaching off the earth. It's not coming down into our humanity. I wish we had low built buildings everywhere. Mm-hmm. This when I go to a hotel and they tell me I can stay in the tower, I say no, thank you. <laughs> well, I think I think what you said about walking cadavers um, is a really important point. I think this um, this may be, in fact, why in popular culture zombies are so popular right that uh, oh, no question yeah and and i think that along with that loss that loss of soul there is a loss of beauty and and this aesthetic sensibility of life seems to be an afterthought yes yes it's an afterthought it's the last thing you think about you may think about it, but the last thing, therefore, you don't give much attention to it because you want to get everything finished. Right. Um, so it should be the first. Uh, I, th- this morning in my talk to the therapist, I, I cited someone. I don't usually talk I, from psychologists when I'm talking to therapists. I cited um, William Morris, who was a oh, yeah. 19th century uh, guy who was incensed about the Industrial Revolution and watching children going to factories and women and men working in these factories and just being dehumanized by the whole thing. And so he decided he had to do something to to affect and change it. So what did he do? He made wallpaper. You know, I thought that I think that's one of the greatest examples in the world for beauty. He brought beauty back into life. And if you look at his wallpaper, it is astonishing. I mean, it would just knock your socks off to be in its presence. He yeah. really did it. Yeah. He's a magician as well as an artist. So I think that's a good model for for us today. If you want to bring soul to bring soul back in, start with beauty and don't put it on at the end or in the middle. Yeah, and I think um, to go back to Campbell for just a moment, I think that was one of the attractions I had to him. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, I studied literature as well as psychology. And um, like you point out, um, uh, some of the great psychologists have been poets and novelists and, you know, Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson. Oh, yes. And I think uh, Tolstoy certainly was a great psychologist. Uh, yes. But uh, I, I think that Campbell captures that aesthetic quality in his work, even when he's writing about very um, uh, science-based subjects, whether it's biology or or archaeology or anthropology. Um, He he does bring this aesthetic sensibility to his work that I am very attracted to. Well, I I read one sentence to you, and I thought, I think that's a beautiful sentence. That's very long. And it's not easy to write a long sentence like that and make a right. But he did, and he and I could give, cite many other examples uh, where the beauty of language was obviously within his grasp, and and he, he obviously spent time and atten- gave attention to writing a sentence that was beautiful and not just get the information across. That right there is the essence of a soulful life. You don't just do what has to be done straight without any flourish you 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 bring do it beautifully and that gives it power and it does bestow the soul on what you're doing yes yes yeah and i think that i think that you've accomplished that to a large degree also in your work and i am appreciative of that and the 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 heartfulness that you bring uh, to your work i think is is the most valuable thing that I take away from it. Well, thank you. I'm so glad you said that. Uh, that's what I, I do try to do. I try to write, uh, I try to make beautiful books. I get that from William Morris, who <laughs> beautiful books. And uh, I, uh, uh, and Jung, who made his own books, those great books, and that the Red Book is such a beautiful book. Um, so I think that's a model. And uh, the other thing is to uh, not to be above your your reader or your audience, to engage them as a friend. That's another thing, by the way, that I think Campbell and I have in common. 
I believe that he was an Epicurean. And, you know, I didn't know him that well to know, but I think he was. And I certainly consider myself an Epicurean. What that means, I don't mean the modern term, meaning you're, you're right. over in food. I mean Epicurus, the philosopher, who said that uh, deep pleasure is the goal of life. And uh, the example he gave of it was friendship. Uh, real friendships and cultivating friendships give you the one of the deep pleasures you need. I think that's a, a very good approach to life. And uh, so I think Campbell did that, and I try to do it so that when people either listen to me or read my books, I hope they find pleasure. Yes, I think I I I, I appreciate that very much. I think uh, I think you're right that Campbell did think along those lines. I, I think you know he often talked about the idea that human beings learn from imitation, and so we find ourselves in the position of uh, play a great deal in our lives when we're learning and when we're working and and so forth. And he called this idea of understanding life as a game as a as a role as a play he called that the aristocratic spirit and i think that's what exactly what you're pointing at with this yes yes uh yeah i think it's uh it's important to uh to play and to to see that play and work are not separate i certainly feel that in my personal life I spend hours writing, and to me, it's just a joy. You know, I mean, I know it's not easy to write, and I have to deal with editors too, which is really, really punishment. But, um, but I do, I do uh, get great joy from uh, from uh, writing, and it's so. People say to me, "You must be very disciplined to write all these books," and I think to myself, "That's not the word I would use. I don't feel disciplined at all." You know, with some people, I'll say it, but most people I can't say it because they, they like to think I'm highly disciplined. But I'm not. <laughs> I, <laughs> it's I, more joyful, huh? It's joyful and playful. It's wonderful. You know, I look for a, I'm looking up a book in my library for something I'm writing, and it's just pure joy to go hunting down something that I like. I mean, it's, it's a game. It's, it's play. Yeah. I I completely identify with that. You know, we have a, a mutual acquaintance, I think, uh, Dennis Slattery. Oh, I know Dennis, sure. No, Dennis. And, uh, I've known Dennis for a very long time, and, yeah. and he still gets up every morning around four o'clock or so and spends a few hours writing. And, wow. And I think it's the same for him. I think it's a, a joy. And uh, yeah, well, he has a he has a great joy. I think a real joyful approach to life in general. So that helps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We um, <clears throat> you talk a lot about uh, James Hillman. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to be at Pacifica in the late '90s when Hillman was regularly there, oh, yeah. um, lecturing and and uh, mm -hmm. giving talks. And it was one of the uh, great achievements. I think the, the great thrills actually of, of my life was to hear him and his beautiful voice, that sonorous, beautiful voice of his. And uh, although I was, I was terribly intimidated by him. So I never really got the opportunity to know him very well. Well, uh, I know. I never had that intimidated feeling. I don't know why. We just we we. I the first time I went out with him, I said, "Where would you like to go, Jim?" He moved into Dallas, where I was living. I said, "I'd like to take you somewhere." He didn't drive at the time. And I said, "Where would you like to go?" He said, "Let's go to a baseball game. Let's find a baseball game somewhere." So that's how we started out, and I never felt any intimidation. But I was always getting phone calls from people in tears, saying they had just talked to James Hillman. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, those he, stories are those stories are legend aren't they he did have have an impact like that although for some grace i don't know why i was never the object of it uh, i was always with him and what i liked was toward the end of his life he, he called once to ask me toward the end of his life he called and asked if i would uh, officiate at his funeral and i told him jim i'm a Catholic guy, you know, I mean, I 
come out of Catholicism. You're Jewish. You remember that? <laughs> he said, I said, oh, sorry. all right. He said, I'd rather have friendship than Catholicism. So worrying about the Jewish thing in his life. So uh, he was uh, very, I think I found him to be very, uh, a very warm and very human person. On the other hand, when he, when he was performing, he was, you know, by lecturing and which I, I saw him countless times too. He was uh, very uh, formal and uh, he always wore a suit and tie, even though the, the tie was always bright green or yellow. Mm -hmm. And I used to actually go shopping at Neiman Marcus when they had their annual sales. <laughs> and uh, I remember one time he said, okay, let's go now. He said, let's let the clothes pick us. We will not choose the right, the clothes we want. Let the clothes choose us. I said, okay. So we went in the store and went around and, and uh, he came out and he had this real, to me, a very garish green and yellow tie and kind of a, sparkly jacket and I said Jim what did you do and he said they wanted me <laughs> so he was he was a very playful guy and he was had a great sense of humor we laughed constantly even about the most serious things we always laughed and had a good time and I felt that he was a, a fellow epicurean he loved food some of his food was strange to me but um he would make lunch sometimes and I could, could gag getting it down. But <laughs> well, he had a very good sense just because of his choice. I don't know where it came from, but he had an odd choice to me and food. But I'm this Irish Catholic guy, you know, I wonder bread and, you know, stuff like that. So <laughs> I'm sure other people would have enjoyed his, <laughs> his taste. Yeah. I think that... Uh... For me, one of the remarkable things about Hillman was, again, that sense of beauty that he brought to his work and to be able to find beauty and and some deep darkness, I think, was a, a really special gift that he brought. Um, he did. If you, yeah, I mean, he was my editor for a couple of books. He published a couple of my books. And so I, I was aware of his way of, of writing sentences and going through them. And it was, he was very good. He was very concrete. He really had really concrete, solid words. He wasn't so abstract. Although a lot of people find his early books, especially difficult. I never have, I don't know. I've always felt that maybe we were in the same jargon. I felt fine or a similar background, classical education. But, uh, but I thought that what I was going to say is that if, um, if you took his book, Force of Character, which is about aging. If you read the last two or three paragraphs, I think you'll find the best writing, most beautiful writing you'll ever mm -hmm. see. Mm -hmm. And it came out of him, just like I appreciated Campbell's writing, the style. They both were a bit formal. Uh, Jim was more connected to the uh, a, a very um, European uh, male um, tradition classical tradition and he often referred to all those people yeah he, he had to do that he had to refer to 10 people for every thought <laughs> but it was rich to me it was enriching and the way he explained it was that is that he was calling on the dead to be with him as he wrote his books he didn't see it as proving or supporting what he wrote but as having a community of people around him who had discussed those ideas before it's a beautiful way of thinking of it it's a it is a beautiful way. Yeah. Uh, how how uh, how familiar were Campbell and Hillman? Did they? Oh, they as far as I know, you know, I I I think they were quite close actually. I didn't. Uh, I never participated in Hillman's uh, men's movement, or I I just was not interested. I was surprised he did it. I was not interested in that. I thought he was playing into the complex of the time. But anyway, uh, I think uh, I agree uh, with you on that one. Yeah. So, so I didn't, uh, I, I didn't see him with Campbell ever. I don't think I ever saw the two people together. Um, but I know he told me the way he talked about him. He, I know that he felt uh, very close to him, and he respected his work, even though they were quite different. I, as an aside, uh, my father was a 
high school classmate of Robert Bly's. They oh. both grew up in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota. Oh. And, and, and yeah, I, well, asked, yeah. I asked my father one time if, if he remembered Robert Bly and, and he thought for some time. And, and then uh, after a while I said, yeah, he said, I think, I think he wanted to be a writer or something. And <laughs> I thought, well, dad, yeah. you know, he, was pretty successful at that. <laughs> he was very successful at it. Yeah, he was a wonderful spirit to be around. He was. I had him uh, as an undergraduate uh, oh. uh, a few times. And, uh, oh, was, well, you know him well. I didn't know him very well, but I was around him quite a bit. Yeah, he was a delightful guy. He was always, yeah. always ready with a joke. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well... Uh, uh, Jim was very appreciative of uh, someone who was always ready for a joke. And uh, and I remember one time he and I went to a movie where we went to the movies once in a while. In those days when you went to the movie theaters a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember watching a Steve Martin movie with him and we just laughed all the way through. And he would shout out, you know, to the audience. <laughs> theater, shout out, what a great line, you know, and he... <laughs> You really get into it. So that uh, sense of, of fun and humor and comedy, which is something a little bit different, uh, was very strong in Hilma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about uh, the most recent of your books for a moment? The Eloquence of Silence? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, Not even out yet. Your, your publisher was nice enough to send a PDF. Oh, yeah. So I got to... Uh, sort of scan through that. And uh, this is a really charming book. Oh, I hope so. Yeah, I love the way that you sort of set this up with the with the stories of, uh, some are Zen stories, some are Sufi stories, some are, yeah. you know, traditional uh, Western anecdotes and things like that. And, and, and then your commentary mm -hmm. uh, to those uh, short little snippets it's just it's really very very charming i'm so glad to hear that because i have no idea you know it has it is not out yet i could i don't know if people would appreciate that or not but i enjoyed it and that's what i wanted to put together so i, I started with actually putting that book together without thinking of publishing it i just wanted to get those stories together and the concept of having different facets of ways of looking at emptiness uh through story and I knew there. I've read so many stories about emptiness. I like them because they they just talk about empty things, like an empty room or an empty bottle or an empty, you know, whatever. Someone doesn't speak when they're invited to give a lecture. That's empty. It's empty. Right. So I, love, I love that theme. So uh, it turns out that people who are endorsing the book are mainly Zen priests and Zen <laughs> practitioners. Or or Wallace Stevens fans, perhaps. Or maybe Wallace Stevens fans. I hope so. I'm a great fan of his. Yeah, well, he he often wrote about the emptiness and oh, the he nothingness. Did. The snowman. The snowman yeah. is a yeah. empty poem. I think one of the really brilliant poets in in the English language, actually. Absolutely. I think he's the best, best we've had. Yeah. Um so this idea of silence. I would imagine that comes out of the therapeutic experience for you in some way, right? Oh, you know, it comes out of my monk life. Oh, sure, sure. Primarily, because I, I lived a quiet life, you know, when I was from, from 13 to 26. That's when I was a monk. 13. 13 to 26. So we had a, a lot of silence, but but definitely quiet all the time. Quiet, not only oral quiet, you know, silence, but also... Uh, Quiet to your eyes, you know, very quiet architecture and settings and things like that. Right. So, so I got used to that, and really, it just suited me so well. And uh, so now I love, I love quiet and silence and appreciate of all kinds. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate it. It comes, it comes right out of me. Yeah. What was the siren call that drew you out of the monastery? Uh, it's very hard. I've never been able to really locate it because what happened, it seemed, my experience of it, I know it's not accurate, but I just woke up one morning and it was gone. Whatever had inspired me and drew me with a passion to be in that life, and I loved it. I really loved it. I didn't want to leave it. 
but I knew it was gone. And I went to my uh, superior there, the guy in charge and priest in charge, and I told him that my so-called vocation is gone. I don't feel it anymore. It's gone. It just disappeared last night. I mean, I, <laughs> it left the premises. And he said, well, why don't you stay a year and test it and make sure that that's right, because it's a big decision. He was very kind. It wasn't a problem. Mm -hmm. And I told him, I said, you know, it was so certain. This this is the kind of thing. It wasn't in my mind. It was just an, a, a realization. And it won't do me any good. In fact, I, I I think I would have to suffer spending another year. In fact, I don't want to spend another month. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating how that works, isn't it? It is. I was certain. I was certain about it, but yeah. I couldn't tell you why. Yeah. I, I could give you a few examples, a few reasons, but they wouldn't be very substantial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, one time I had a client who was the abbess of a convent and we had worked together for a few years and at the end of our work together uh, she asked me if she could ask me a personal question I, I said of course sister you know and and she asked if I'd ever thought of being a priest and I said I said no sister I think I think that she would have pinched <laughs> and, uh. and she's she said well she said, I think you found a way to be priestly in your everyday life. And and I think she meant that in the most positive way, I hope. And, and, but uh, it, it was a really lovely little uh, end to our, our work together. I've had a similar experience in that when I published Care of the Soul, suddenly I was invited by many churches of all different kinds to uh, to give sermons. And I mean, I remember giving a sermon at St. John the Divine in New York. And I thought, wow, I'd never get here if I hadn't written Care of the Soul. You know, <laughs> there's no way I could have got up here. So, and I, I thought that was great. And uh, the Grace Cathedral in uh, San Francisco, I was there once, I was asked to give the sermon at the Episcopal Cathedral. And so the, the service began after a long procession and the the the, uh, the what do you call it? dean of the church came up to me in the middle of everything, and whispered to me. And I was way up front at a special seat for the speaker. And uh, she said, "You are an Episcopal Episcopalian, aren't you?" And I said, "No." And she said, "Well, I guess it'll be all right." But I just felt that you know I belong here. I don't know what she felt, but I belong in all the churches. I don't feel that's that's one of the great developments after care of the soul is that I feel at home in all religious and spiritual communities. There is something, uh, I think, of an energetic signature. You know, um, the, the British poet Philip Larkin wrote about it in his poem, Church Going. And I think you can't find a more perhaps problematic and, and atheist uh, person than Philip Larkin was. But, yeah. but still, he could even... Uh, sense this spirit or this energy or this perhaps soul that yeah. exists in these places when for centuries they are used for the experience of the sacred. I just read yesterday, I'm doing a, a work now on Henry Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau. And uh, I read a comment from him where he said he thinks God is really an atheist. And I think that's you know probably a good way of putting it, it's a little bit like Bonhoeffer said that, you know, that he wanted to live in the presence of God without God. There's a kind of paradox involved in that whole thing. Yeah, I think so. And I think that uh, that paradox is, is uh, I think it sort of reveals the, the presence of the gods in a way. It, when we run into paradox, it seems like the gods aren't very far away. That's a very good way to put it. You should write that down right now. <laughs> I'll I'll look at the tape again later. <laughs> yeah, no, I think uh, speaking of uh, Joseph Gamble, that uh, I felt that he had that spirit too, that he knew from his travels and from uh, from his uh, deep exploration of many of uh, the mythologies of the world, that uh, he could be at home with them all and that he was... Uh, 
he didn't have to belong to a particular tradition in order to, I mean, I don't know what his personal feelings were, but that's my sense from his books, that he really understood what it means to what the word God tries to point to. I think it's not terribly successful, but it tries to point to the experience of something that is unnameable, um, but still very real and valuable and important. And we can all can have it no matter how sophisticated we are. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Um, you know, I think that that he was, I think, reasonably successful in that endeavor. Um I think that's what people respond to when they watch The Power of Myth, for instance, is is there's something about him um, beyond his appearance and beyond his posture and beyond his language. There's something there, something soulful, I think we could use that word, and, and, and people respond to that. Um, Absolutely, yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And he was the kind of person who gathered people around him. I remember when I first saw him, um, I was on a bus, I think it was in, I'm not sure, maybe Kansas, I'm not sure, on a bus where, going to a conference that he was speaking at. And I was still a student. I mean, I was young, I didn't, I was nobody. And, uh, but I was on the bus with Houston Smith, who was a religion professor, mm -hmm. scholar, uh, world, world traveler in the realm of religion similar to Campbell in that he traveled the world from one religious tradition to another. So Houston and I were sitting up front in the bus and I heard this person behind and I said, uh, I said to Houston, I said, who is that? I heard this kind of a, kind of a loud uh, New York accent. <laughs> I don't know what borough that is, but, uh, and I said, I said, he's got all these people around him. I said, who is that? And he said, that's Joe Campbell. And uh, what I that my first experience of just, even just seeing him was that people were drawn to him. Yeah, was, people were just wanted to flock around him, and I saw that again and again. That the people were were attracted, and there's something that he had. That's why when you say it's the soul thing, I think it is. He had a soul. He had a really present soul, and people saw it. And and he wasn't always easy. I mean, I found no. him difficult. At times, oh, I think I think I think the work that he's most well known for is a very very difficult work, the hero with a thousand faces. Yes, and, and uh, I I I think it's just a very hard work to really get a handle on. Oh, I didn't mean it in the sense of uh, difficult that way. What I meant was that he was ornery. Oh yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> well, see, I didn't have the. The pleasure of knowing him. So <laughs> I didn't have much, but I could see that he was, he was, people were just flocking to him. But at the same time, he could shoo them away without too much trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you something while I think of it, if it's uh, bring up something, because it's, it's something that bothers me. It's a little, a little sand in the oyster with Campbell. Sure. And that is exactly the hero with a thousand faces. I know many people probably ask this question, but um, <clears throat> I don't feel comfortable with that formula of, uh, of uh, calling adventure or return, whatever, however, whatever language you use for that, uh, as a formula for like, you know, for everything. And and people are teaching it now. If you want to learn screenwriting, you learn that formula. And I think it um, it's not accurate for the stories of the world or the great mythologies. Uh, they have their own structure as well. It, and that's a little like putting something on top of it, you know. And, right. And using. Right. I don't think I never heard Campbell use it that way myself. Um, I, I I don't think. Uh, especially later in his career, I hardly ever heard him refer to it. Yeah, me um, too. But uh, I think, you know, this was his first major solo publication back yeah. in 1949. And mm -hmm. and I think he, he evolved in his thinking. Oh, yeah, I see. 
and I think I think you're right. I think it has become uh, one of those books that everybody has on their bookshelf, and hardly anybody reads. Oh. And and it is a, a huge thing in Hollywood in the entertainment industry. Yeah. And, and yeah. In, it's taught in writing classes and script writing I classes know. and things like that. And boy, you know, I think I don't know if Campbell's to blame for the glut of superhero movies or not, but the, it sure does fit that model. And it fits the model, yeah, definitely a lot fits that model. But there are many other models. Yeah, maybe in number. Yeah. But I think that's a I think that's a, a valid uh, critique uh, mm -hmm. to make with Hero. I think it's I think it's arguing a, a more subtle point than the way it's often broken down and communicated. That could be. I'll have to, I'll have to look that over. The fact is, I do go back to to that book of you know with with relative frequency, because like I always go back to these passages that inspire me. That sentence inspires me. If I want to start writing a piece of my own, I'll read that sentence to remember to write beautifully and uh, come with some complexity and still have beauty. I admire the writing so much, but also the ideas and the exploration of all those themes. So um, I do read the book, and uh, it's something that's near me. Uh, you know, so when I'm talking about him, it's with deep appreciation. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of uh, one of his gifts, uh, you know, a, a part of his genius. He was able to see these patterns and and make these connections uh, between various mythologies around the world in really meaningful ways that that continually open up the individual's experience. Uh, rather than you know closing things down and and uh, yeah uh, literally defining things, I think this this is his great uh, great gift is this ability to see these similarities, these overlaps, these patterns, and and to be able to elucidate them in ways that are extraordinarily meaningful. That really helps me a lot with that question, what you just said. I, it's simple, but it, it opens it up. Uh, because I can understand that, too. When I write things, uh, I mean them in one way, and other and people, readers, sometimes take them a little differently. Yeah. And even the word soul, you know, to me, I'm, I've got Plato in the back of my mind and a whole centuries and centuries of literature on soul. And languages about soul, you know, different different languages, the word, and all of that. Um, but the average person that talks to me might just think, I don't know. A lot of people think it's just a, it's like something you believe in. It's a spiritual, purely spiritual thing. I see it more as a deep, a deepening, and I I like the tradition where it is different from spirit. So I always do, yes, uh, yes. soul spirit, and. Uh, Anyway, but I can see that uh, in writing, it's very easy to write something and it, it is taken not exactly as you meant it. And it doesn't maybe have the subtlety that you in, intended. I see that all the time. Yeah, I think it's 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 very hard to, uh, you know, retain control over the words that, that you've written once they're, you know, <laughs> once you've let go of them and they're out in the world. You can't go around and tell people they're, Misreading me. <laughs> that would be an interesting tour, though. I would, I would, I would, I would buy a ticket to that one. <laughs> I think that. Uh, I, I think sometimes that people get uncomfortable with the fuzziness of, of the word soul, and 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 maybe the metaphysics of it. Um, I I remember uh, Coleridge. Uh, who who was quite the materialist, but he couldn't do without Plato either. No. And he referred to Plato's work as dear gorgeous nonsense. Mm -hmm. And and it's this sense that that you know Plato is the indispensable thinker in some ways. Yes, I think so. I never I mean I understand this division of the Middle Ages between Aristotelians and Platonists and definitely fall on the side of the Platonists. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, again, it's the, those aesthetic um, qualities. I think are are hard to articulate, but they're they're very difficult to live without. Mm -hmm. Well, 
I can't thank you enough for this conversation that we've had. Well, I appreciate it very much. It's so nice, which is that we are just having a conversation. I forgot for a minute it was being recorded. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm very glad to hear that. And uh, I, I I haven't enjoyed a conversation this much for a long time. So I, I appreciate okay. it. Thomas More says the idea of soul is ultimately a deepening into who we really are, and that by looking deeply into myth, we can explore the human and existential questions that arise in us all. And like Campbell asks in the quote that incorporates both the myth of Tristan and Isolde and Joyce's Stephen Dedalus, how can we entrust ourselves fully to life without oars and without a rudder? Myths help us to do this, and as Thomas's work has shown, connecting deeply with our own soul can give us the solace and provide an inner compass and an inner set of oars and rudder as we navigate the storms and the waves that life inevitably presents. Next time on the podcast with a thousand faces, we have a conversation between Ken Liu and Marie Claire Gould. Ken is an American author of speculative fiction a winner of the Nebula, Hugo, and World Fantasy Awards. He wrote The Dandelion Dynasty, a silk punk epic fantasy series, as well as short story collections, The Paper Menagerie and other stories, and The Hidden Girl and other stories. Lou frequently speaks at conferences and universities on a variety of topics, including futurism, machine-augmented creativity, history of technology, bookmaking, in the mathematics of origami. Marie Claire is the host, publisher, and editor of What the Force, a Star Wars fandom podcast. At a young age, she burnt out her Betamax version of the original trilogy, and since then, she has been a fan of Star Wars and the fandoms that have developed. In their conversation, they discuss mythology, AI, and the narratives that we can create about the future of technology. Next time on the Podcast with a Thousand Faces. The Podcast with a Thousand Faces is a production of the Joseph Campbell Foundation. It is produced by Tyler Lapkin, executive producer John Booker. All music exclusively provided by APM Music. For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell, please visit jcf.org.